everybody, it's Drags. It's Wednesday, May 13th, time for episode 350 of Patriots Beat on the CLNS Media Network. Find us at clnsmedia.com and follow us on Twitter at PatriotsCLNS. You can also follow me on Twitter, of course, at Trags, T-R-A-G-S. Welcoming back Zach Cox, covering the Patriots and the NFL for Nesson.com. Follow him on Twitter at Zach Cox. Nesson, that is Z-A-C-K-C-O-X-N-E-S-N, all one word. What's up? How's my favorite bearded buddy, according to uh, the uh, newest uh, Patriot linebacker, Brandon Copeland? How you doing? How's the, how's that beard <laughs> hanging in? The beard is getting a little uh, out of hand at this point. Um, it's it's been it's been going since the start of this whole quarantine uh, with a, a couple a couple little mini trims, but. Yeah, it, it's it, it might be time for a uh, for a restart. I, I was hoping to to leave it until we we're kind of allowed to go back into the world, but I think if we get to that point, I might start looking like Tom Hanks in Castaway. So might be uh might might be time for a trim. Yeah, for those who don't know, Brandon Copeland during his conference call um, on Friday with Patriots reporters uh, gave a shout out to Zach Cox because we were on a video chat, and I thought that was very impressive that he noted that. <laughs> I appreciated it. All right. Uh, let's get to the business uh, that everybody is tuning into this uh, wonderful podcast to hear from Zach Cox about, and that is Patriots News. I'm going to start with uh, Tom Brady and Josh McDaniels. Tom Brady uh, had some issues with uh, one veteran football scribe, Gary Myers, a story that the breakup between the Patriots and Tom Brady was more than just uh, Tom Brady not getting along with Bill Belichick. He, uh, Gary Myers asserted on Monday that uh, there was an underreported part of the Brady departure. That is his uh, worsening relationship with one Josh McDaniels. Uh, I found it interesting for this simple reason. Tom Brady, in terms of the reporters that he trusts, has to, Gary Myers has to be near the top or at the top of that list because Tom Brady does not uh, welcome reporters into their car for hour-long conversations on a book that they're writing like he did with Gary Myers. What do you think, Zach? Yeah, that's that's definitely a good point, the fact that um, they they do have that prior relationship. But it was also just interesting to see the the reaction that Tom Brady had to this coming out on, on Instagram and, and calling it nonsense and saying, uh, uh, asking, asking Myers to, to be more responsible with his reporting. Uh, you don't usually see a, uh, a reaction to Tom Bra- uh, by Tom Brady to a, uh, a report like this. And as we both know, there have been plenty over the last three, four years about friction between Tom Brady and whoever in the Patriots organization. It's, it's rare that we'll see him come out immediately and sort of go on the offensive and, and refute a report like this. So that, that was telling to me. And the fact that both, Tom Brady and Josh McDaniels have always been overwhelmingly complimentary of each other. Uh, they, they're, they've been great friends for a long time. I'm, I'm sure there was probably a point where Brady was frustrated with pretty much everything about the Patriots last season, uh, especially the offense. But uh, I, I don't know with seeing how, how vehemently Tom Brady denied this, it, it makes me think that it might have been uh, uh, less of a, a deal than, than Gary Myers was letting on. Okay, I'm going to give you the cynical side, uh, the skeptical side uh, from my point of view. Given Tom Brady's reaction 
And as you noted, Zach, how quickly he was to react to it, I'm going to suggest that maybe, just maybe, Tom Brady might have intimated something to Gary that, yeah, there was more than just Bill Belichick going on, that he didn't always see eye-to-eye with Josh McDaniels. And Gary pushed him and pushed him and pushed him, and then Tom said something, and Gary was like, well, is that on the record? And he's like, well, yeah, you know, and Tom laughs, <laughs> and doesn't answer whether or not it's on the record. And you follow where I'm going with all of this, right? Yeah, that's that's uh, a very possible situation um, for, for sure. Something where the responsible reporting, quote unquote, wasn't that he was reporting something that was not true. It was reporting something that he was told, but told that he wasn't allowed to share or wasn't explicitly told that he was allowed to share. I, I could definitely see that uh, also being another um, another potential outcome of this. But I, I don't know, just just with how quickly he denied it and how quickly he wanted to uh, – I mean, maybe he just does wants Josh McDaniels to 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 think that they still have a good relationship when, when they don't. Uh, doesn't want him to maybe know that he that he had some kind of anger or, or displeasure towards McDaniels last year. Uh, I guess that is possible. I just I maybe I just took the, the non cynical route uh, when I when I first uh, looked at this, just seeing the how different Tom Brady's reaction was to this to that compared to everything else that's that's kind of been reported about him over the last couple of years, including his the reports on his relationship with Bill Belichick, which he never came out and said, oh, no, 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 that's not true at all. It's not true at all. So it's uh, just interesting to, to see the way he responded to this. Yeah, and, and did you listen to uh, Gary Meyer's explanation on Tuesday, um, the New York Daily News columnist again, who said that Josh McDaniels and Tom Brady had a relationship that deteriorated, quote-unquote, during the 2019 season? Well, Gary Myers went on uh, the Sports Hub's uh, Zolak and Bertrand show on uh, 98.5 and uh, stood by it wholeheartedly. So, yeah, he, he is standing by his story. He is saying that, which does kind of give some some credence to the point that you brought up, that it was a a story that is true but was not maybe maybe Brady thought that he was off the record but right. he was not off the record or a situation like that. I, I can definitely see uh, see that being the case, if um, uh, especially with, with the way that, that Myers kind of followed this up and, and stood by uh, what, he, what he tweeted uh, last night. So while I'm going all conspiracy, I'll jump in with both feet. <laughs> At the end of that 98.5 interview, Gary Myers dropped a little nugget, which – I thought was fascinating and almost was like he was going to play both sides against the middle here, um, giving Patriot fans a reason to really love uh, his reporting instead of hate his reporting. And that is, um, you know, in his work on the Brady versus Manning book, the untold story of the rivalry that transformed the NFL, of course, Tom Brady and Peyton Manning, um, He says, quote, I've told people this a million times that the public perception of Brady and Manning is the complete opposite of what they are really like, Meyer said. Everybody looks at Tom as this standoffish guy, a little full of himself. People are jealous of him because he's been so successful as a supermodel wife, and he's got the perfect life. And people resent him for that. With Peyton, it's this awe, this funny, gregarious guy, very forthcoming, very friendly, funny, and on television, he's great. I'm telling you the truth. The reality was completely different than people's perception. I'll stop right there with the quote. Um, but 
I found it interesting that Myers dropped that on um, everybody toward the end of that interview. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That was one of the probably the bigger ta- the biggest takeaway from that interview, other than obviously his um, uh, his his initial quotes on on his his report. And I'm sure that's definitely going to be well received by Patriots fans, who especially those who still uh, aren't really too fond of of Peyton Manning. Uh, yeah, that was it was it was interesting. I mean, when you're you're writing a book about these two kind of titans of the game, two of the best quarterbacks in, in NFL history, it's it, it is, is interesting to hear some behind the scenes about how they actually interacted with. I mean, I'm, I'm sure the their their interactions with a a writer maybe aren't kind of that maybe maybe they don't kind of show the entirety of their personality and their character. Of but course, it is interesting for for Myers to kind of present it like this um, uh, with with his dealings with both of them. I, I just found it interesting that he even Myers admitted in, and again, this was on the sports hub on uh, Tuesday morning uh, with Zolak and Bertrand. He says, Archie is pissed at me. And, <laughs> it, and I could see that, right? I mean, he is, he is painted a uh, Peyton Manning as disgenuous, uh, disingenuous, right? That's the mm-hmm. way he's essentially paid, uh, painted Peyton Manning versus Tom Brady, who, um, I think gets a, a bit of a buy, a bit of a break, if you will, on his image publicly. No, I, I can I can definitely see that, and I don't think it's. Uh, I think the list of people that Archie Manning is pissed off at is probably pretty yeah. long. Yeah, it uh, is. Going back, is <laughs> he he does tend to be a guy who uh, uh, sort of holds grudges in in this kind of uh, scenario, especially when it comes to his kids. Yeah, uh, Myers is wrapping this up. Uh, said that Brady was much nicer in per- person than Manning was uh, when he was working on the book. That's why I brought up the fact that Tom Brady, on a trip to Boston, had Gary Myers uh, in his car for an hour, uh, and they talked about football, uh, talked about his career, talked about everything that's in the book. Whereas Peyton Manning was not as quite as wel- welcoming when he went out to Denver and tried to do the same thing. So uh, that's it for the Brady McDaniels uh, Peyton Manning drama for this week. We'll move on to other subjects. Speaking with Zach Cox, covering the Patriots and the NFL for Nesson.com. Follow him on Twitter at Zach Cox Nesson. That's all one word. All right. Let's move on to the business of football. How do the Patriots get their final draft pick, Kyle Duggar, signed, Zach? I still think that they do something with Joe Tooney. Uh, I, I know the the likelihood of either kind of avenue happening now, the the extension or a trade, kind of it goes becomes further and further more and more unlikely with every passing day. But I just can't see them going into the season paying one of their guards $14.8 million when you're already paying your other guard no a five-year, $50 million contract. It's so much money to devote to that position. And, I mean, at this point, if they can't get an extension, I guess they should probably keep them because they don't really have um, much much quality depth behind them. But I, I still think that something's going to get done there just because that is the most obvious uh, solution and the easiest way for them to open up some cap space. There are a, a fair number of other ways um, for them to do it. Uh, Doug Kide, my coworker, uh, uh, beat colleague at Edison, broke, yes. broke down a few of those this morning. Um, there are a lot of uh, – you could still see a, a Mohamed Sanu release or a trade. You could see a restructure for 
uh, a number of players or restructure and or extension to uh, a guy like Dante Hightower, uh, Stefan Gilmore, Marcus Cannon, uh, Shaq Mason. There are a lot of uh, players on this roster. Uh, I mean, extension for James White or, or Lawrence Guy or Adam Butler. They could cut Jermaine Illuminor, which might be the easiest one, uh, considering that he hardly was able to make it on the field last year. I was a little bit surprised that they even um, kept him under the restrictive excuse me, restricted free agent tender. So th- there's a lot of avenues that they can go about here, but they they don't just need to open up enough space to sign Kyle Duggar. That's, right. that's step one here. Uh, understood. You can't, you can't go into an NFL season with zero cap space or with very little cap no. space because guys are going to get injured. There's going to be a situation where you want to swing a trade, you want to pick up a guy off waivers, you want to grab somebody who was not on your roster and add it to your roster. You need that four or five million at least in, in kind of buffer room to get into the season just to prepare for the inevitable roster move. So there will need to be, I mean, this isn't going to be as simple as just sort of cutting one of the, the bottom of the roster type type no. guys. There are going to have to be some, um, I, I don't want to say significant moves, but some, some notable moves with some players that, um, that some, with some prominent players. I'll say that. I'm going to give you three names. All right. Mohamed Sanu, Patrick Chung, and Rex Burkhead. And yep. the reason I give you those three, Mohamed Sanu is $6.5 million, And I know publicly Bill Belichick has said, you know, he likes the receiving core. He likes what they can, you know, provide in terms of their experience and knowing the system and all of that. But if you don't think sincerely that the Patriots have a legitimate shot of getting to the Super Bowl, which I don't really think they do, um, with, uh, obviously Jared Stidham, uh, we presume, the quarterback going into the 2020 season, then why not make cuts of 6.5 million on Sanu, James White at, th- I'm sorry, uh, Rex Burkhead at 2.5 million, and, uh, Patrick Chung at 2.9 million. That is just roughly doing the math. That's 9.5 plus, uh, 2.5. So that's 12 million bucks right there. Off, yeah. and would you really miss those three players? I think, I mean, I've been saying since before the season ended that cutting Sanu is probably in the Patriots' best interest because he's not going to be as bad as he was last season. Uh, the, the ankle injury really hampered him a lot more than, than we knew at the time as evidenced by the fact that he went, underwent, um, offseason surgery on that ankle. And before he came to the Patriots, he seemed like a perfect Patriots type guy. So I think he will be better if the Patriots keep him this year, but 6.5 million. I know they didn't really do much to improve their receiving core this offseason other than um, kind of signing Demare Bird and Marquise Lee and, dra- and bringing in a couple undrafted free agents. But right. I think you could – your your, t- your offense would be worse without Mohamed Sanu, but opening up that $6.5 million would definitely help them. I think cutting Rex Burkhead is probably an, an easier choice. Um, I like Rex Burkhead. He's a very good player when healthy, very valuable but player. But Damian Harris. He's been – yeah, it, well, Rex Burke has been injured a ton over these last couple of years, and Damian Harris seems to be on that James White, Shane Vereen track where basically get redshirted as a rookie and then yep. kind of come into a more prominent role. That's not going to happen if the rest of the running back depth chart above him remains intact, which is the way it is right now. So uh, I can definitely see Burkhead being one of these cap casualties. Chung would be a more surprising one just given – Obviously, how long he's been with the with the organization, how much Bill Belichick loves him. Yeah. But 
it is true that his play has declined over the last couple of years. He's just been absolutely beaten down by injuries, and the Patriots do have a lot of safeties on their roster right now, including Kyle Duggar, who was their top pick, who was a guy that a lot of people look at as a, a potential replacement for Chung maybe one year down the line or two years down the line. So it wouldn't be kind of flabbergasting for Chung to to be released, but I think that is significantly less likely than than Burkhead or Sanu, just given the kind of affinity that Bill Belichick has for Patrick Chung. But again, I mean, Bill Belichick's made uh, non-emotional decisions plenty of times in the past, so it, it's definitely possible. Unlike trading uh, Richard Seymour to the Oakland Raiders in 2009. Well, that that's is a segue, Trey. That that's is segue. not only a segue, it is a tease because we have some <laughs> business to take care of right here. Speaking with Zach Cox, covering the Patriots and the NFL for Nesson.com. With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think there's nothing to bet on. Well, you my friends, would be wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, still has hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on, from their online casino to poker and blackjack, as they are bringing the Vegas to you. Missing the NFL? No problem. Bet Online has live daily Madden NFL 20 simulations that you can wager on. If you're into entertainment betting, you can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. All open 24 hours a day and all online. Visit the website or you can obviously use your mobile device and join today to receive your new welcome bonus with the promo code CLNS50, that's CLNS50. Bet online, your online wagering solution. Back with Zach Cox of Nesson.com covering the Patriots and the NFL. All right, Zach, um, I thought the fans, and I tweeted this out, I thought the fans got it right uh, putting Richard Seymour uh, in the class of 2020 for the Patriots Hall of Fame. I think he belongs in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. What do you think? I agree. Um, to, to hit on the first point, uh, it's going to be basically every Patriots Hall of Fame um, kind of cycle is going to be some difficult decisions because given how successful this team has been for the last 20 years, basically every there are a list of probably 15, 20 guys that deserve to be in the Patriots Hall of Fame. And when you can only put in one each year, there's going to be some deserving candidates that, that don't make the cut, like Mike Vrabel, who will get in at some point. Uh, like Bill Parcells, who probably will get in at some point. Uh, and then even guys like, like Logan Mankins and Wes Welker were on the ballot this year. So it, there aren't really many easy calls in this whole process, but Richard Seymour is, should have been in the Patriots Hall of Fame five, six years ago. This guy was one of the best players, both on the Patriots and at his position in the entire NFL. I mean, he was on the NFL all decade team for the 2000s. He was a pro football Hall of Fame finalist. The last two years, the fact that he wasn't in his own team's Hall of Fame was a little bit crazy uh, and also hurt his case to get into the actual Hall of Fame. Right. Uh, he, Which he, he made reference to in the video chat. He, yes, he did. He did. When we spoke with him um, after this this announcement was made, he said, yeah, I mean, it kind of makes sense that writers were able, were able to say, well, this guy isn't even in his own team's Hall of Fame. Why should we why does he deserve to be? in Canton in the, the overall Hall of Fame. And that makes some sense. Now he does have that kind of feather in his cap, and I do think he will get into the uh, NFL Hall of Fame, and I, I think he deserves to. It's tough for guys at his position, um, for, for defensive tackles, for interior defensive linemen who don't put up 
kind of a ton of sack production. They, they don't really fill up the stat sheet. I think Seymour averaged fewer than five sacks uh, per season in his NFL career, but that wasn't his game. His, his game was to just cause havoc in the interior, occupy blockers, clog up those running lanes, and he did that better than almost anybody in the NFL over the course of his career. It's it, it, it would be, I mean, the odds are stacked against him a little bit considering there, there hasn't been a defensive tackle voted into the, into the Pro Football Hall of Fame since 2013, uh, when Warren Sapp got in. So it's, I wouldn't call him a, a shoe in by any means, but no. I, I do think with where he's gotten in the voting process these last two years, uh, with the, the body of work that he has and now the fact that he is a Patriots Hall of Famer, I do think he will get in and I do believe that he deserves to get in. I know people are going to gasp when I make this comparison. But watching Richard Seymour, uh, and, you know, and he had same, some of the similar injury history as this player I'm about to bring up. Makes, watching Richard Seymour reminded me a little bit of Mean Joe Green. Athletic, he played over the nose, he could play outside, but I mean, obviously in the Steelers, uh, steel curtain, he was mostly inside. Um, and he was the kind of player who would not always play, uh, put up huge stats. Obviously, but if you watched him snap after snap after snap, the way he dominated, the way he drew constantly drew double teams, and Bill Belichick uh, would often make reference of that when he was uh, playing in New England. Um, to me, he was one of the best defensive tackles of the generation. I want to read what Bill Belichick tweeted on uh, or put out in a statement on uh, Monday night about Richard Seymour. Richard was a rare physical and athletic talent who possesses excellent intelligence. He was more than most any offensive player could handle, and this enabled us to benefit as a defense in many ways. Richard came into the league as a mature, humble, high-character person and quickly became one of the cornerstone players in the early stages of this program. We would not have won three championships in four years without him. I am thrilled he has been recognized as one of the franchise's all-time greats. The, The line that sticks out to me, we would not have won three championships in four years without him, um, kind of points to my uh, feeling that he was the linchpin of what the Patriots were trying to do in their transition to a 3-4 defense. Yeah, that's not praise that Bill Belichick throws around uh, lightly. It's very rare that you'll see him kind of offer this this level of, of compliments to, to a player uh, or a coach or, or anybody, really. It's basically reserved for guys like like Tom Brady and, uh, and Dante Scarnecchia when, when he retired, kind of legends of of the the Patriots organization and, and cornerstones of this dynasty and it, it was you, he clearly has the the utmost respect of Bill Belichick and I also thought um, something that was interesting from his um, from his video call yesterday was the fact that he's uh, Richard Seymour said he's talked to a lot of offensive linemen over the years and he's like every single one of them ha- respects me like I have the respect of my competitors of the offensive right. linemen and the offensive Great coordinators point. that I went up against. He's like, yeah, I don't have the, the numbers, but that wasn't my position. That's not what, that wasn't my, my job and my role. My role was to make life extremely difficult for offensive linemen and offensive coordinators. And that's exactly what I did. So it, it just shows how the way that he kind of measures his success and, and measured what he was able to do over the course of his career. Uh, and, and I think that's how you, how you kind of have to look at a player like this, who you can't just look at the stat sheet and say, "Oh man, this guy was a beast." Look at—he had 15 sacks this season. It's—it's it's you got to go a little bit deeper on it, and and I think that that Richard Seymour 
there there aren't many defensive tackles in the last 20 years that that compared to what he was able to do. And for those who love the conspiracy theories about how Belichick, you know, kicks veterans out the door and veterans are bitter. Well, I mean, look at how it ended in New England for Richard Seymour. He was stunned, hurt, whatever word you want to use, didn't immediately report to Oakland. He obviously got there in time for the start of the season in 2009, played all 16 games that year, earned all pro uh, and Pro Bowl honors uh, with the Raiders in his first couple of years there. But it's textbook. For any veteran player who plays for Belichick, you can be upset and you can be frustrated with the financial ramifications of playing in New England, playing, you know, in the NFL. But as long as you don't burn bridges, Belichick will have your back even when you leave. Absolutely. And I, I thought it was interesting hearing the way that um, that Seymour described his relationship with Bill Belichick because uh, he was basically asked, whether there are there any hard feelings right. about the way that his whole tenure ended because there was those contract negotiations and obviously the trade. And he kind of said it was – you could tell that he didn't love the way that it ended here. Um, but he, he said, look, it's a business. You have to make tough business decisions. But from a personal standpoint, he says he has nothing but the utmost respect for Bill Belichick and, and the way that he treated him as a person and their interactions in the years since. So it's – He's a guy that a lot of people don't like kind of playing for in those kind of scenarios. I, I can see how that would be hard to deal with as a player. But I think a lot of them, as you mentioned before, when they do look back and they can see that, yeah, well, this this was a business decision. This is a business. And this was kind of what what was best for the team, to, to use a Bill Belichick cliche. And it, it does seem like that Richard Seymour is able to kind of recognize the the reasons behind a lot of that stuff and, and, and sort of see it from Bill Belichick's perspective. I, I think it comes down to this, Zach. Speaking with Zach Cox of Nesson.com covering the Patriots in the NFL, it comes down to this. If you give your heart and soul to football and the Patriots when you're here, how you leave doesn't really matter that that much to Belichick as long as you don't go. I mean, like I said before, you don't burn a bridge and you, you don't like act like an asshole on the way out. The you door. don't go Mangini. Yeah. yeah, right. You don't go Mangini. You don't try to get back at Belichick and get back at the Patriots. I mean, if you're frustrated uh, with the way things end, uh, but you have it out with Belichick privately or what have you, or just get, get it off your chest, which I think Seymour did, um, and if you give your heart and soul when you're here and Belichick, Belichick will notice that. And, and I think he will give you uh, some, cut you some slack. Absolutely. As I told you on Twitter, I'm finally doing something about my weight and my health. I found a solution for weight loss and it's Awaken 180. My friends in the media told me about Awaken 180. It's their go-to program to lose weight without killing yourself in the gym or taking any kind of medication. Just listen to the success stories. My boy, Kyle Draper, he dropped 30 pounds. Andy Grish dropped 105. And that's not it. Scott Zolak, Steve Logan, Dan Reeves, Dr. Laura R. Carmen, and add Cedric Maxwell to the list. It's only been about three weeks and I've already dropped about 15 pounds. 
Turn these trying times into a reason to get healthy like me. Call Awaken. Receive the same one-on-one coaching I'm getting at home or on Skype. Also access 1,000 recipes and tools you need to weight loss from the company who has revolutionized the weight loss industry. Set up your first consultation today at Awaken180WeightLoss.com. So, um, as we wrap it up here with Zach Cox of Nesson.com, follow him on Twitter at Zach Cox Nesson, all one word. Um, Monday was the first day, if I'm um, correct on this, May 11th, that rookies uh, could virtually uh, train and report to their teams. Is it correct? I, I believe so. Yeah, yeah. I, I believe in the, in the CBA that they modified it so that. Uh, the rookies could could start working out with their teams and and virtually um, get training updates and whatnot and, and get uh, obviously uh, familiar with what their teams expect of them both on the field and off the field. How do you think the Patriots will uh, get creative with their rookies? They always find a way, I think, to get creative. I think uh, this will be no exception. No, I, I agree with that. It was it was interesting hearing uh, Bill Belichick sort of lay out the the team's offseason plan for these rookies during his post-draft uh, conference call, which he went into more detail than, than he usually does, just saying That's how right. they're going to get all these all these guys up to up to speed. And it's going to be difficult. I mean, it, especially when you've got, so what is it, the 10 draft picks plus about 14 or 15 undrafted free agents. So these are guys that are going from going from college, going into the NFL, and they're not going to meet in person any of their coaches or any of their or most of their teammates for weeks, months. I mean, who knows when they're actually going to be allowed back in the team facility or even allowed to kind of congregate on their own and, and do work outside of the facility. So it's going to be difficult. It's going to be a situation where I wonder if the Patriots put a little emphasis on kind of off-field focus or sort of mental acuity or I don't know exactly what word you would want to use for it. Uh, it, it was interesting to me that they, uh, a lot of their undrafted guys, or not a lot, but four or five of them were players with um, some off the field issues um, in college, with some um, some type of uh, team suspensions or some some um, uh, questions about work ethic and stuff like right. that. That doesn't really seem like the types of players you would want in this type of environment, but they must have been able to to convince Bill Belichick and the coaching staff that that they kind of had what it took to to succeed in, in this type of environment. It's going to be interesting. They have a lot of interesting players. They've got a lot of um, – uh, they're basically their rookie class is built on guys who are able to do a bunch of different things, especially the draft class. It's basically everybody in, in the class can play multiple uh, multiple positions other than the, the kicker, essentially. So it's going to be a lot of players trying to learn a lot of different responsibilities at once which, again, is going to be more difficult when you're not in an on-field setting and you're not in, in a, a scenario where you can kind of rep these things at practice. It's all just sort of classroom and, and video work. So it, it's going to be tough. It's, it's, this has to be more difficult than, than any scenario for, for rookie players in, in quite a while. It, I mean, since it's probably 2011 and, and maybe even more, uh, longer than that. So it's uh, – I don't know. What, what's your take on this whole thing, Jags? How are, how are you feeling about it? Uh, so I'm very uncertain about how they're going to go about, uh, really getting these guys up to speed. Um, I'm, I'm assuming that they're going to get creative and they're going to, 
um, provide mental challenges, mental uh, tests, if you will, that uh, the players have to check in with the team every so often, like on a, well, let's say, daily basis. They have to uh, meet certain checkpoints before they advance to the next level of their um, orientation with the team. That was the word I was trying to come up with. I know it's a tough yeah. word, but uh, I think that, I think the Patriots are going to use this as an opportunity to see how many of these undrafted, well, how many of these rookies, whether they're undrafted or they're drafted, really are committed to the program. And yeah. uh, I think they're going to find different ways to do this uh, off-site and do it virtually. To your point about taking a chance on some character guys uh, who may have shown some um, tendencies to get into trouble off the field uh, in their past, I think the Patriots feel like, well, the bars are closed, the nightclubs are closed. It's going to be a lot harder for these guys to get into trouble. Um, that's, that's not a bad point. And especially if they've moved to Massachusetts, which I, I assume the Patriots have suggested they do that, even though they can virtually train. I'm sh- sure that the Patriots have asked them, you know, get a place close to Foxborough, um, be in isolation, but be ready to go. Uh, because I think it will be within probably four to six weeks when, you know, facilities open for real and teams can start having at least workouts and, and, uh, you know, orientation uh, with the team in person. So I think it's going to be interesting. I am curious to see whether or not uh, Jamar Smith uh, makes this team, like as mm-hmm. as a practice squad quarterback or Brian Lewerke does. Yeah, I, I like a lot of what I've seen from Jamar Smith um, on film. It's a little strange that he didn't really get any sort of buzz during the pre-draft process. Um, he, he definitely has some flaws, as you would expect from anybody – uh, that went undrafted, but he's got a little bit of a, a poor man's Jordan Love kind of vibe yeah. uh, going on with with some of what he's able to do on the field. Um, has some mobility as well. Uh, I, I think he's a much more exciting prospect than uh, Brian Lewerke, who looked pretty poor at Michigan State the last couple of years. Pedestrian um, I, would I, be the word. Pedestrian is a very good word for it. Um, I, I yeah, it'll be interesting to see if either of them is able to do enough to to actually make this team. I would assume they'll keep at least one around as a, uh, a practice squad player, or at least attempt to, um, cons- uh, assuming he passes through through waivers. But it's going to be difficult for these guys, especially at the quarterback position. I mean, you're not going to have any of the spring reps to, to prove what you can do for this team. Uh, people or players outside of the roster bubble, it's going to be very difficult for, for them because, I mean, you, you've watched uh, these, these OTAs and, and mini camps before. It feels like every time we come out of mini camp saying, oh, man, this, that kid, J.C. Jackson, you know, he's, he's got something. He, he's a guy to watch this summer. I, I think he's already kind of uh, uh, he, he's catching our eye here. You're not going to have that this year. Those players are going to have to kind of condense all of that, all of those impressive practice reps into training camp in the preseason. So it, it makes it a little bit more difficult for sure for – for these undrafted type guys to, to prove that they deserve a spot over a more established player or over a, a draft pick uh, when, when they don't have quite enough, quite as much um, on field time to prove themselves. So I forgot to ask you something. And yes. so uh, we're going to have one more subject here. Give me one reason why Cam Newton will be a New England Patriot in the fall and one reason he won't be. Uh, That's a tough one. I don't... Yeah, I, I, I know that's will, off the cuff, I don't think but. he will be a Patriot in the fall. I, I guess if a quarterback who 
was once an NFL MVP um, and has been passably good within the last couple of years, if it comes down to the season and he's willing to sign for the veteran minimum, maybe you take a shot on him if he's so cheap and still has some upside. But I don't know. I, I just feel like if they had any interest in Cam Newton, they would have shown interest in Cam Newton at some point. And according to all the reports, they just haven't they, they haven't been interested in bringing in a guy like that. And it just seems like with the way that they've constructed their entire um, their entire roster this offseason, only going out and getting Brian Hoyer and then those two undrafted rookies that we mentioned earlier, it just seems like they're not interested in, in having a, either a big-name free agent or, or kind of a highly touted draft pick in there. I think they like Jared Stidham. I think they like Brian Hoyer as the insurance policy slash uh, kind of sage backup. Uh, and I think they took a shot on these two undrafted rookies to see what they got. I mean, I don't know. It's It would be a a kind of an odd change of strategy, I think, at this point, if they went out and signed Cam Newton before training camp after what they've done over the last couple months. I, I don't know. I, I can't see it happening. Maybe he gets so cheap that – Bill Belichick says, "Sure, why not? Let's let's take a shot on him." But I, I don't know. I I I would be surprised if if Cam Newton winds up a Patriot before the season starts. I would too. It's just that I think if this uh, if we weren't dealing with the pandemic, I think one of the biggest stories in all of sports would be what happened to Cam Newton. Absolutely, it? and I think I think if we weren't dealing with the with the pandemic, uh, Cam Newton would have signed somewhere by this point uh, because I think a big uh, a big portion of it was that no team has been able to bring him in and work him out and have their doctors examine him. And because this is a guy that's dealt with some pretty significant injuries over the last couple of years, both the foot and the shoulder. Nobody really knows where he's at health wise, where he's at kind of mobility wise, what he can do at this point. And the fact that no teams have been able to quote unquote, get hands on him. Then I think teams are a little bit scared off um, about what kind of, player they might be getting from from an injury standpoint so uh, I think if the if this was a normal offseason I think Cam Newton would have gotten a I don't know seven million dollar contract somewhere uh, assuming that he worked out for a team and and checked out medically but at this point it's yeah it's just taken a lot longer and it's kind of I, I don't know where he's going to end up there, there I have no, no idea I mean I have no obvious I mean maybe he goes to the Jaguars but I don't know there there aren't many obvious uh, kind of quarterback landing spots anymore especially for a high-profile guy like Cam that might not be willing to go the Andy Dalton route and just say, hey, I'm coming in as the unquestioned backup, uh, and then I'll try it again next year. It's, I don't know, it's it's fascinating. It is, and uh, I'm, I'm 50-50 on whether or not Cam even signs with anybody uh, before opening day 2020, whenever that is. And uh, one more question, Zach. I'm really uh, taxing you quite a bit today. I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> I, I got nothing better to do, so I, I'm more than happy. Yes or no, we have fans in the stands for at least some NFL opening day games in September. Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there are no fans in the stands the entire season, honestly. Um, I I think if I had to make a prediction, there are no fans in the stands to start the year, maybe for the first month or two. Uh, then they try to implement some socially distanced uh, fan yeah, that, policies. That, I don't but think I that works. I just don't know how that's going to work. I mean, even if, the, even if you have fans sitting six feet away from each other. They're still in the same concourse. No. They're still kind of going I mean, through the same, the same ticket, um, ticket turnstiles. Right. 
I don't know. I just don't know how you can do it safely. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if they just say, hey, we're, we're not having fans this season. It's not worth the risk. It's not worth the, the, the ticket revenue of 1,500 fans to risk the fact that somebody might be getting sick at an NFL stadium and then potentially spreading that to a stadium staff who could spread it to a, a member of the team or the coaching staff. There's, there's just too many too many dangers and too many variables uh, for me. I don't. Uh, I, I would what, be stunned if there are st- fans in the stands to start the season. Well, there's a way around that, and that is by adding a coronavirus um, addition to the back of your ticket stub uh, license, saying that uh, you waive all rights to uh, you know come after the league or the team uh, because you you know contracted corona. I mean. True. Th- the biggest thing to uh, sorry to interrupt you though. Yeah. The biggest thing to me is that I think if you're going to a sporting event this September, like early fall, you don't really care that much about your own. You're saying I'm fine with assuming the risk of contracting coronavirus, but you can't really. That person is going to go home and go back to their their house and go to the gas station or the supermarket afterwards and there's a good chance of that person spreading it to somebody else. I, I don't know. It's, I think if, if they were just worried about people kind of suing them, I think that would be less of a, less of a concern than the kind of, than, than having so many people in the, in these stands and then kind of spiking up another outbreak and having to shut down the entire season again. I, I don't know. It's maybe they'll find a way around it. Maybe they'll find, I some really sort hope of, they uh, do workaround. because I, I got to tell you, Zach, you know, I'm hoping that the curve flattens so much. It's not going to be gone by, let's say, July 4th or mid-July. But if it's so minimal in late July to August, people are, want to, are going to want to go to games just to say, look, you know, I, we can't live like this forever and we accept the risk. But it's whether or not society is going to allow them to do that. And I have nobody has a crystal ball. I mean, nobody knows how it's going to look in two months. Nobody knows how it's going to look in one month for that matter. But I I am rooting and hoping that we see some fans uh, at not, not only NFL games, but all types of events uh, come late this summer, early this fall, because I think people that there will be no better cure for the mental outlook of people the the country who has been which has been dealing with this than seeing fans in the stands at games no i i totally agree um i i'm in i'm not in the camp where the 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 camp that says well if there's not going to be any fans why why would you even play the games i mean the people who are saying that they wouldn't want to watch sports if there aren't fans in the stands because it's a different atmosphere blah 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 i i don't agree with that but i do think that having fans back in the stands, getting to a point where we can have fans in the stands safely and not risk kind of another blow up of, of this whole coronavirus thing. That's, that's, that's all that I'm hoping for. Man. I, I, I would love to get back to something remotely resembling normal at some point this season. So what you just said is what I wrote you know, several weeks ago is that I don't think games uh, should be played until fans are allowed back in the stands simply because um, if the, if these athletes are quarantined and they have to go between their homes, uh, between their hotel rooms 
and the arenas that they're playing in, uh, I don't think that is going to, uh, I, I don't think that's good for their mental health and I don't think that's a viable long term or medium range solution for this. The other, the flip side of that is if these players are playing in front of big stadiums and, and, uh, and crowds, I think it's going to give them the sense of normalcy that, hey, look, we're, we're back playing games for these fans. It feels a little bit normal. And I don't think they're going to feel as hesitant about returning to their workplace, the, the fields, um, as if it were, you know, as if the instead they were playing in front of uh, empty stands. No, that's that's a good point. I, I was talking about the, the people who are saying from like an entertainment standpoint where they're like, oh, fans with no or sports with no fans. That's going to be weird. It's going to be like they're playing in an empty gym. I don't want to watch that. Like, I totally get exa- everything that you're saying there. Uh, Dante Stallworth actually made a similar point on Twitter this morning, the former Patriots receiver. He said, basically, if it's not safe to have fans at games, a thousand percent it's, not agree. Safe, it's not, yeah, it's not safe enough to actually have the games, which is, is, is a pretty good point. I mean, it's obviously you're going to be have, having fewer bodies and fewer people in there, uh, but there's, there's a lot of contact in an NFL game. If if somebody is uh, if someone's sick, you're you're it's a pretty good chance that the entire team is going to get sick and the entire opposing team is going to get sick. So I don't know. I I'm not smart enough to know how they're going to solve this, but it's I, I mean there's enough money on the line that I think the NFL will find a way to to get this done. And we're going to have games. games. There's no doubt we're going to have games. Yes. I don't know how to do it safely or how to do it kind of properly but they're going to find a way to make it happen and then hopefully having that happen doesn't cause any sort of uh any sort of spike in in this whole thing and hopefully everything can get back to normal sooner rather than later so i've moved on from saying stay stay safe to stay sane because (laughs) i think that's the bigger concern we're all dealing with right now i want to thank thank you zach uh, zach cox of nesson.com for joining us it's been a terrific discussion want to thank everybody for downloading today's podcast thank zach cox of nesson.com follow him on twitter at zach cox nesson want to thank our terrific sponsors bet online and awaken 180 for producer michael Angi and the founder of the network nick gelso this is mike petralia and this has been the patriots beat podcast powered by clns media Hello, I'm Dan Lothian, host of the Behind the Media podcast on the CLNS Media Network. Along with Jimmy Young, we dive into the biggest media headlines each week with honest, informed, and sometimes irreverent perspectives. It's not all serious. We deliver information and entertainment. As we like to say on Behind the Media, we find the interesting in media so you don't have to go searching for it. Listen to our podcast and get prepped for the next trip to the water cooler. Subscribe to Behind the Media wherever you get your podcasts or find us on www.clnsmedia.com.